From the launch of our church, we have had a vision to join in with Jesus's work of saturating Dallas with the goodness of the gospel. But why is this so important? When the gospel saturates a city, spiritual renewal happens. People become more generous and empathetic. Families flourish. Vibrant communities are built. Race relations are more healthy. Works of mercy and compassion for the poor are invigorated. Schools are strengthened. Healthcare becomes more holistic and healing, and businesses are more creative and humane. When the gospel saturates a city, God is known and cherished and people flourish. And this is where you come into the story. As a church family, we want to renew our commitment to this vision and the values that undergird it. You have a meaningful part to play as we join with Jesus in saturating Dallas with the goodness of the gospel. Today's Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Today's New Testament reading is from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Today's gospel reading is from Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you'll look at the piece of paper that was in your seat that starts with, this is our church home, you'll see kind of a recap of these values that we've been going through. I want to review those with you in just a moment, but I want to remind you of why in the world uh, have we done this? Because as each new value comes out, you might be asking yourself, okay, so how many of these are there? We're going to go on for a couple years, just pulling new values to kind of add on, uh, you know, to make it complete. And maybe we could do that and that'd be a fun experiment. But really, we've tried to condense these into what are the values, the passions, the callings of an authentic disciple of Jesus? And what are the values, the passions, and the calling of an authentic church of Jesus Christ? Now, remember, there were three reasons why we began this journey several weeks ago. Number one, we saw that in Dallas, there's a bit of a, a crisis or a conflict related to how faith works out in our lives. 
If uh, researchers say that 87% of Dallas would identify as Christian, so on a census report or maybe a Facebook kind of check your religion spot, 87% of our city would say that's where we are. And yet it was somewhere down in the 40s that said, hey, that has any real bearing on my life that there's some way that my faith works out of my life, some meaning, some impact, some way that it shapes me. Only 40% said that the faith really connected with life. And so we see for many in our city and maybe even many in our church that Jesus is kind of a name on a label, a descriptor, if you will, but we're not experiencing the power, the goodness, the healing, the majesty of who he is. And as a community, we want to say, no, Jesus is so much better than just a checkbox on a census or a status update on Facebook, but he is the best thing going, that his gospel is transforming in power, that his kingdom is amazing, and it's meant to touch even the deepest places of who we are. As the Bible said, we're invited to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And we as a community are saying, we've tasted, we've seen, there's more to taste and there's more to see, but man, we wanna go for the authentic, real deal of being a follower of Jesus. Am I popping for y'all? We sound, sound-wise, we good? Okay, we, we have a little microphone issues this morning. All right. Second reason why we said this was important for us to go through is if we've been in a time of transition as a church, right? If you remember, we used to be on Shoreview with the leaky roof and the small hallways. And then we did last spring kind of our hotel to parking lot to park to house kind of migrant uh, summer, if you will, and we got into our new space in August, which is really exciting. But at big times of transition, it's important to clarify who we are and whose we are and where we're going. So this has been a vision series as well. Third reason why we said we want to go through these topics is that it matters for our city. As the video declares, when the gospel saturates a person and when it saturates a city, man, really good things happen. Healing, transformation happens. God is known. Neighbors are loved. The world changes. It flourishes. It moves from a place of death to life. And so in many ways, if that's true, then we owe it to our city to let it go deep within us. And so I just want to review with you the values that we've looked at. We started out saying that Jesus is our treasure. First value of being an authentic disciple is that Jesus is amazing that he's the thing we're going after. He's not a means to some other end. He's not, man, if I get my life right with God, then maybe I'll get the job that I want. He's so much better than that. He is an all-glorious end in and of himself. He didn't come primarily to give us treasure, but to be our treasure. He didn't come primarily to give us bread, but to be our bread. And that's the heartbeat of what it means to be an authentic disciple of Jesus. From there, we see that his gospel heals that he had a ministry of healing that touched minds, hearts, bodies, relationships, families, cities, and nations. And that we, as we receive him, we receive the gospel. We receive a deep healing in our lives. And then we're called to be ministers of healing in the world around us. To do that, we need to be filled with the Spirit. And good news for us, God fills us with his Spirit, with his empowering presence that brings us into a vibrant relationship with God, that transforms our character and empowers our ministry in the world around us. It changes the way in which we live. 
It makes us better together, not just as a slogan, but it transforms us into the type of people that when we're together, it really is better. A community marked by love. We went through some of the values of that community. Number one, that we're blessed to be a blessing, that the way we think about our resources changes when we're an authentic disciple of Jesus, that we're not just me, my life, me monster, it's all about me, right? But we're transformed to see God has blessed me and I'm called to be a blessing to the world around me. That save people, serve people. When we really receive the salvation of Jesus, it doesn't make us proud, arrogant, like churchy as you think about it, but it makes us servants, that we serve one another, we serve our coworkers, we serve our neighbors, we serve our family, we serve our city, that found people find people, that Jesus came for us and he calls us on mission to be a part of helping other people come to know him. And today we're gonna focus in on that kind of at a bigger level, transform people, transform cities. So as we've gone through these values, you'll see that next week, the last one on here is we won't take this for granted. What we're going to do next week is something unique a bit uh, that we've not done before, but we're going to have a commitment Sunday or a renewal Sunday where we're going to give ourselves the opportunity to, in a fresh way, commit to Jesus of saying, man, I'm in for being a disciple. We're going to give ourselves an opportunity in a fresh way to commit to the people of God, to say, hey, I'm in with y'all, that this is a group project that we're working out our faith together in. And we're going to commit to our city that we're going to let God transform us, that we might be a part of transforming Dallas. Now, if you've been with us a long time and you're saying, hey, I've been around a while, this has been my church home for a long time, this will be a renewal of sorts. Renewal is powerful in any relationship. My wife and I, we're going on being married 15 years in May. And you know, each May 10th comes around, what do we do? We have some sort of renewal time, an anniversary where we celebrate our wedding. We celebrate how we came together, what God's done in our lives, our commitment to one another. And you know what it does? It softens our heart and gives us renewed vision for the year ahead, right? Renewal ceremonies are powerful, and we want to have a renewal ceremony. If this is your church home, to just say, man, as for me and my house, I'm in again. And if you're newer with us, you've come in the last year or last six months, and you've kind of been hanging out and kind of seeing, but you're like, man, yeah, this is, I want this to be my church home. I want this to be my church family. It's an opportunity to say, I'm in. I'm in with, with Jesus, I'm in with these people, and I'm in for his purposes. Now, I know we live in an age, a cultural moment, where commitment is kind of frowned upon, right? We live in the day where you send a text message the morning of to kind of back out of a meeting that, you know, you don't want to go to, uh, or on Facebook, you can keep someone as a friend, but you can mute their status updates so you don't have to see them anymore, right? We can just, we can just back out of relationships. I realize that. And and I appreciate that, both those things. I've done both of them. Uh, But at the same time, (laughs) at the same time, you realize that there are things in life that you will not experience. There are fruits in life. There's goodness in life that will not come apart from commitment. That there is something that happens when you commit to one another. There's dynamics of my wife and our relationship that only have come through years of committing to one another again and again 
and again. And when we hold back from commitment to Jesus, when we hold back from commitment to the people of God, when we hold back from commitment to the purposes of God, and we kind of do the, the stiff arm, we may, oh, we're friends, but I'm going to kind of mute your status so I keep my options open. When we hold back from that, we miss out on significant things that God wants to do in our lives. When we commit to Jesus, his people, and his purposes, it makes for a better you. It makes for a better me. It makes us better. What do I mean by that? Well, you realize that if you were to commit to, let's just say, the value of we're better together, and you were to say, you know what? I'm going to commit to that, and I'm going to commit to becoming the type of person that really when I'm around, it is better. I'm going to deal with some of the areas in my life that people have brought up to me, but I've just kind of shied away from. But I'm going to commit to getting healed and to getting whole relationally and to getting equipped so that I really could be the type of person that it is better together. You realize you'll be a better friend. You'll be a better boyfriend or girlfriend. You'll be a better husband or wife. You'll be a better employee. Like if you take the value that I'm blessed in order to be a blessing, that your job is not all about you and you climbing the career ladder, but you say, man, God's blessed me. How can I be a blessing where he's placed me? Or save people, serve people. That it's like, okay, I'm called to be a servant here. Do you realize you'll be a better, more fruitful employee? You'll be a better business owner. You'll be a better consultant or teacher or nurse or doctor or wherever God might have placed you, right? Do you realize you'll be a better neighbor if you embrace these values? Like, you'll be better. I'll be better if I'll commit to this. We'll have a better us, as we've seen, the Bible teaches that God has endowed each of us with gifts, with callings, with strengths that are meant to build up his people. What that means practically is there are people in this room that need you, that need the gifting that you have, that need the strength that you have. I'm one of them, right? We need each other. And when we commit to each other, what it allows for us to happen is that we use our gifts and our strength to build one another up and we get better together. We become better. We become stronger. We become more flourishing and fruitful. Third thing that happens when you commit in this way is that our city prospers, that people flourish, that our city gets better. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. It's where we're going to spend most of our time. And so what I'm going to ask you to do before I forget about it is to take this sheet home with you this week. And I want you to consider this. I want you to pray about this. I want you to take some time to say, okay, God, is this something that you want me to do? Am I to commit afresh to you, your people, and your purposes and then next Sunday, we're going to have a kind of a, a commitment ceremony, a renewal ceremony, a we won't take this for granted time. That'll be exciting uh, to do. So let's look at this idea that I've laid out before you that really this benefits our city. Isaiah 61, verse 1, if you'll meet me there, we're going to read a prophecy about Jesus. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you're new to Christianity, and you're like, how does this Old Testament, New Testament thing work? The book of Isaiah was written, scholars tell us, 600, 700, maybe 800 years before Jesus came. And this man named Isaiah was a prophet. He was someone that, that, that knew God, and God spoke to him and through him. And this particular passage of Scripture is a prophecy, a prediction of sorts, a foreshadowing of who Jesus 
would be. It's describing him. Though Jesus has not yet come, it's painting a picture of what God was going to do in Jesus. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That's true of Jesus. In fact, if you're familiar with the opening of Jesus' ministry, kind of his public announcement, this is the passage of Scripture that he read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound. Now just pause there for a moment and think about the word pictures that are being painted as descriptors of Jesus' ministry. That he was going to be one to bring good news to the poor. That he was going to be one that bound up that healed broken hearts. Now, you might be here today, and you might have a broken heart. You might say, you know, if I were really honest, that's the thing that would describe me from the pain of your own life, things that you've been through, disappointments, maybe a doctor's diagnosis that you got even this week. I want you to know that Jesus's ministry brings healing to broken hearts. That's good news that he was to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound. Who can relate to that? You might describe your life as, you know, I'm actually kind of bound up in fear or anxiety or jealousy or, or, or greed or comparison or disappointment. I want you to know that Jesus' ministry to you in a very real sense is to bring freedom those places that you feel bound and bent over by the pain of this life. That he would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that you can know that God's favor is upon you, that his face shines on you, that his goodness is inclined to you. You know about the day of the vengeance of our God, that Jesus would have a ministry of justice, that he's going to bring justice where there's injustice. Alongside that, he's going to comfort all who mourn. If you're here today, In your mourning, Jesus doesn't look at you and say, hey, just tough it out, slap a Band-Aid on it, get going. But he brings comfort to those who mourn. He grants to those who mourn in Zion, he gives them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. What does that mean? Well, ashes is what people wore back in his day when they were sad, when they were mourning, when they were grieving. And Jesus takes away our ashes, and he gives us a headdress, a garment of beauty. Instead of a faint spirit, right, it's what we're going to read, he gives us a spirit of praise. He gives us the oil of gladness instead of mourning. What does all this mean? This is healing. This is transformation. This is a deep work in our lives that's the fruit of Jesus' ministry to us. Many of us are familiar with a Christianity that's like putting a nice coat of paint on an old broken down car, where again, Jesus is a status update or a bumper sticker or, or a checkbox on the census. But what we see here is that he's much more than that, that he has come to touch, to heal, to renew and transform even the deepest areas of our lives. This is deep discipleship. This is deep transformation. Jesus is not a surface level, kind of mile wide, inch deep savior but he touches us down to the core. And then what you'll see in verse three is the fruit of that ministry. What happens in the lives of his people? 
These people that were marked by being in prison, that were marked by being bound, that were marked by having a faint spirit, that were marked by being oppressed. Verse 3 says, they shall be called oaks of righteousness. Think about a strong oak tree. The fruit of Jesus' transformation transforms our lives such that we would be strong oak trees. He goes on to say, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, that through the work of Jesus in our lives that others would see his goodness, would see his mercy, would see his patience, would see his justice, would see his love, that God would be cherished in the hearts of people through the way that you and I have been transformed by the gospel. Then he begins to speak about not just their character, but their calling, the fruit of those that are transformed, what would happen. Look in verse four. They, these people that receive the gospel and are transformed by it, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. And what do you see? You see this imagery of people that are transformed being sent to be agents of transformation, transforming cities, transforming ruins, rebuilding that which has been destroyed, even destroyed the devastation of many generations. Put simply, what we see is that transformed people transform cities. That's really exciting. You guys are the more sleepy of our two services. So I'm going to just give you a little church coaching right now. You read something like that, you're like, man, that's exciting. You can be fired up about Jesus. This is good news, right? Okay. So now, is this one of those Bible verses that we do kind of say amen in church, but it's never really happened? And it's kind of like, well, I guess so, but I don't know if that's really real. Like, has that really ever happened? Transform people, transform cities. Well, this month we celebrate 500 years since the time historians call the Reformation. If you're not familiar with that, 500 years ago, a monk named Martin Luther, uh, along with a number of other leaders, brought a Reformation around the grace of God to the church of Jesus and to uh, Europe. And that reformation has spilled over and impacted our world. I want to share with you today about one of the leaders in this reformation movement. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Martin Luther, he had some great strengths and some great weaknesses. Uh, and, you know, looking back 500 years, I imagine we can see those clearly. People living 500 years from now, if the Lord tarries, probably look at our lives and be like, wow, some great strengths. I don't know how they thought that, Right. But an amazing story of God's grace. If you haven't seen the movie Amazing Grace, go watch it on Amazon. You'll enjoy it. But I want to talk to you today, not about Martin Luther, but about another controversial leader that God worked powerfully through, a man named John Calvin. If you'll show the city of Geneva on the slide, this is Geneva, Switzerland. It looks awesome. Make your vacation plans to go there now. It's beautiful, right? Takes your breath away. It was not always so. In fact, in the time of the Reformation, it was known as the smelly city, kind of like the armpit of Europe, not the place that you want to go. Geneva is smelly, it's decrepit, things are falling apart. It could be described as someone or a city that needed the ministry of Isaiah 61 that we just read about. And at the same time, there's a young man named John Calvin. When he's around 25, 26, 27, 
He's a French guy, he's studying law. He has a dynamic encounter with Jesus. Many of you are 25, 26, 27. We have a number of lawyers in our church, right? So probably a guy very similar to us. He's pursuing his career. He grew up uh, in the Roman Catholic faith and was just really not interested in God. I mean, the way he would describe as he knew what he should do, he just didn't really care, right? So again, Christianity, kind of like an inch deep label, no real depth or power in his life. But he describes in this season, having a dynamic encounter with God, I'm going to read you a quote from him. He said, God, by sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. So God began to reveal himself to him, and Calvin's mind begins to be changed from a proud mind, a hard mind, a mind that was against the things of God, to a teachable frame of mind. He said this, having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to make progress. So encountering Jesus, he was moved, passion was birthed inside of him to grow in his relationship with God. Now, if you're scratching your head right now, and you're like, I know I've heard that name Calvin somewhere. If you grew up outside of the church, he's most known for today, uh, part of his doctrine around predestination. And this gets people riled up in all sorts of ways. And so that might be what you're familiar with him about. If you grew up in church, right, you either probably went to a church that loved him and loved everything he taught, or you went to a church where he was kind of like, whoa, don't mention his name around here, right? Sure, uh, we could debate the nuances of his theological uh, approach, but I'd like to invite you to take a step back and to look at the fruit of God's grace in his life in the area, in the city of Geneva. I don't imagine you've heard uh, the story of transformation that God worked there. So acknowledging kind of the, the controversy around him, let's, with that in mind, let's explore uh, his life. So at 27, he's had this deep encounter with the Lord, and he is leaving France, and he's going to a particular city wanting to be an academic, wanting to be a philosopher, wanting to be kind of a writer, and just retire to a life of thinking and writing an academic pursuit. He's kind of one of those bookish guys. Well, he stops over one night in Geneva, no plans to stay there. It was kind of like his layover spot. Many of you might be in Dallas as a layover spot. John Calvin thought it was a plan on to something else, but something remarkable happened in his life. He ran into an evangelist who had been preaching the gospel there and had been turning the city upside down named William Farrell. Now, Farrell was a very interesting guy. He was very controversial himself. He had very bold methods for preaching, but he was going around Europe preaching the gospel, causing quite uh, an upheaval. And Farrell meets John Calvin And he tells Calvin, he said, Calvin, you're the man to step in and lead the renewal that's happening in Geneva as the result of Farrell's preaching. Calvin's like, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm just staying over a night, man. I'm going to a life in the academy of study and writing and thought. And Farrell looks at him, get what he says. I mean, I can't just, the boldness here. He said, if you do that, God will curse your studies. Wow. Imagine somebody coming to you for like career advice and they're like, God's going to curse you if you go that route. I mean, this is intense, right? Seems like Pharaoh was a fairly intense guy. So Calvin kind of like, wow, okay, uh, what do I do with that? Prays about it and really senses that God was calling him 
into service in Geneva. So he begins to work with the church in Geneva. He and a number of other leaders proclaiming the gospel and this renewal that began with Pharaoh kind of fans into flame. There's spiritual renewal in the city. The gospel is going deep in people's lives. People are experiencing the grace of God. Well, they begin to raise up and disciple leaders within the church to empower people. And part of their theology Part of the Christian gospel is that every person is made in the image of God. Therefore, every person has dignity. Every person has potential. Every person is actually designed for freedom. A second angle to that was that there's not a divide between kind of here's my Sunday church life and here's the rest of my life out there. They said, no, all of life is meant to be worshiped. All of life is meant to experience the transforming power of the grace of God. And these two things had remarkable effects within the city. I want to tell you some of the things that happened. Number one, it transformed education. So all you teachers in here, take note. They said because they believed that every person was made in the image of God, then every person needed to have the opportunity to decide how to live for themselves. To do that, they needed to know how to read. And so they began public schools, the first public schools, and they opened them to men, to women, and to children. It was the first school that women could attend, right? And they opened their doors because they said, everyone's made in the image of God. Everyone needs to be taught how to read so that they can make decisions for themselves. They started a university that now the roots of Yale and Harvard and many of the most prestigious universities in the world trace their heritage back to the university these reformers started, teaching and training and investing in leaders to go out and transform society. In the area of the city, as they read through the Bible, they saw that Christians were called to love their neighbor, and that this was to have practical input in their lives. In the Old Testament, they read about cities of refuge that people fleeing persecution could come and could stay in. And they said, that's what God has called us to be. And so they opened up their city, Geneva, as a city of refuge. They changed the building code so that people were free to build an extra room on top of their houses to house refugees. And you can go there today and you can see the extra layer built to create a city of refuge for people. Uh, They impacted the economy, all the businessmen and women in here. They thought, wow, how does the gospel speak to the economic realm? In their day, kings and the nobility had all the power, had all the finances. And if you were poor, you were a farmer, and you were going to be a farmer for generation upon generation. Without the incentive to be able to progress, farmers took advantage of the system. Kings and nobility took advantage of the system. And overall, it was ruinous. Well, the reformers come through and they teach again, men and women made in the image of God, men and women with a calling. We need need that to transform the economy. And so they changed the economic system. They began to create lending laws so that people who needed access to capital could begin new businesses. Along with those lending laws, though, they instituted a 4% interest rate. So the banker could make a living, but they wouldn't take advantage of people who were in search of capital to begin new business ventures. And so this entrepreneurial spirit began to be birthed in Geneva, changing the economy. They didn't just teach 
capitalism though. They taught capitalism with a calling to love your neighbor. And so just as you were called to worship God with your work, you were also called to give and to invest in those around you. It was both love for neighbor and pursuing God-given callings, and it transformed the economy. In the area of government, they said, okay, every person made in the image of God, that means every person needs to have a say in the way that life happens. At the same time, every person is born into sin. They were realistic about the potential of men and women. And so they said, okay, we're not going to have one person in charge, one church or one king or one noble calling all the shots, but we're going to create separation of powers where we're going to balance out the power, checks and balances, so there would not be one person who could decide the fate of everyone. If you're familiar with U.S. government, wonder where we got that idea from. We copied it from the reformers in Geneva. And as they did this, their city was transformed. Their schools were transformed. Their businesses were transformed. Their political and economic policies were transformed. And the city began to flourish. And it, the, the, the foundation was laid for it to be what it is today. Other interesting facts out of this time, several hundred years later, but in the seedbed of what the reformers laid, a man named Henry Dunant, and I don't know how to say his name, the French way, he began the Red Cross to care for people. He was from, he was from Geneva. And the teachings that he was brought up in, and the foundation of the gospel, and our call to love our neighbor, when he saw need, he began the Red Cross. The Declaration of Human Rights was crafted in Geneva, inspired by the Ten Commandments, God's laws to give people freedom and life. So the Declaration of Human Rights was crafted. Today, there are 60 other major nonprofit humanitarian organizations in Geneva that were birthed out of these ideas. Transform people, transform cities. It's amazing to think about. It's amazing to think about what would happen in our day if you and I committed ourselves to the grace of God, to the gospel going deep in us and going wide through us together, what God might do in Dallas. And that's where I want to close today is for us to reflect on that. Next week, we're going to have that renewal, commitment. I'm not going to take this for granted. I'm going to pursue this time. But right now, I want to invite you to go to God. You can stand up, and we're going to do that by taking communion together. When we take communion, we celebrate the body of Jesus broken for us and for our sins. We celebrate his blood poured out for new life. And when we take of the cup and the bread, we remember what he's done and we commit ourselves afresh to him. I believe that God wants to speak to you today. I believe that the Holy Spirit has something for you out of these words that were shared, a way that he wants to speak to you. And so as you come forward to take communion, I want to invite you to posture your heart to listen to God and to what he would say to you. If you're not a Christian or you're unsure about where you are, don't feel uh, pressure to take communion. You can remain in your seats. The officiants will be at the four corners of the room. And when you're ready, you can come forward and take of the bread and the cup and then receive it at your discretion. I'm gonna pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you're not a God that's a, an inch deep and a mile wide. God, but that you go deep in our lives 
and you bring deep healing, deep discipleship, deep transformation down to the core of who we are. That when we receive your gospel and we let it work in our lives, Lord, that we become oaks of righteousness. And that as we're transformed, God, that we get to be a part of transforming cities. That there's no area of the city that you don't want to go in and bring healing and flourishing and life and hope. Lord, and I pray that you would speak to me and speak to my friends, even now, Lord, as we come before you of what you have for us in this. We open up ourselves to you, Jesus. Here we are. We're your people, Lord. Speak to us, oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. You can take communion as you're ready. Well, I hope that encouraged you. If this message spoke to you, if God's doing something in your life, I'd love for you to send us an email and let us know. You can do that by just hitting reply on any of the emails you get from us. Wait, what's that? You don't get emails from us. Oh man, why don't you go to our website and you can sign up for our community newsletter. Once a week, you'll get updates on what's going on, what God is doing in our midst. And we would love for you to be a part. Uh, If you've enjoyed this series of podcasts, love for you to go on iTunes and leave a review. It helps other people find out uh, about this stuff. Love you guys and we'll see you next week.